Good morning. The spirit of Christmas is the spirit of fulfillment. God's promises are remembered. The words of his prophets come true. Christ the Lord is born. But the spirit of fulfillment is also true for us. God's purpose in sending his son is to make each of us live up to our potential, to become the people of justice and righteousness and holiness that we were created by God to be. We light this candle as a symbol of Christ, our fulfillment, recognizing that the fulfillment of who we are created to be is possible only because Christ is born in Bethlehem. Please stand again as we continue in worship.
the prophets centuries old. The birth of Messiah has been long foretold that unto you, now unto you, Christ is come. Let all creation sing God's own song. All the newborn King, the Word made flesh, now dwells. That's why we're here. Let me invite you to share a word of greeting with others who are here in worship today. If you have this thought in your mind that you love singing Christmas carols, but when you come, we come to church, we don't sing all the ones that you want, or maybe you miss some, tonight is the night for you, because we're going to come together, we're just going to sing a whole bunch of Christmas carols. And we'll have carols, we'll sing carols that are in our hymnal, as well as carols that are not. We'll have some song sheets, 
And uh, it's an opportunity to sing your favorites. And we'll give you an opportunity to choose the ones that you like to sing. Uh, The children's choir is going to do a number. There's an adult ensemble doing a number as well. But mainly it's singing Christmas carols. So join us 5 o'clock tonight. And afterwards we'll go to the community room, have a cookie reception. And if you can bring some cookies, that would be great. If you can't, don't worry about it. Just come anyway, and we'll have a good time together of singing uh, the the songs that remind us and tell us of Christ's birth tonight at 5 o'clock here in the sanctuary. Uh, Next Sunday, we gather for worship at one service at 10 o'clock, and that will be the schedule for the next few weeks. As you see on the back of the bulletin, it has a list of the service times. So we'll be at 10 o'clock next week uh, only, just one service. And the Christmas Eve services at uh, 5 and 7, if you're going to be here, love to have you be a part of those gatherings. It's always special times together as we come on Christmas Eve and those moments to sing, to read the scriptures, uh, to share life together, to light candles, and to uh, celebrate the birth of Christ that is such, so integral to who we are as followers. Also note that uh, Wednesday evening activities uh, will not take place the next few weeks because of the holidays as well. So if you're involved in those, please take note of that. We want to uh, give you an opportunity to share uh, out of the ways in which God has blessed you. So we're going to ask the ushers to come and assist us in the giving of our tithes and offerings. Tonight I can see a star shine And it's my turn
privilege of praying together. If you would like to use the altar rail as a place where you offer your prayers, please join me. Father, it is an awesome thing to think about the birth of Christ and the hope that is ours because Christ is born. Many of us take that truth for granted. Forgive us. We have heard the story so many times. We have lost the awe and the wonder of what the coming of Christ means. Forgive us. And on this day when we gather for worship, when we think about the birth of Christ once again, fill our hearts anew with the hope that is ours because Christ is born. Father, we pray that you will rekindle your hope in all of us who have grown weary, who are wrestling with, quite frankly, a sense of darkness about life. We pray that you'll restore hope to all of us who are wrestling with burdens and sins and struggles that we just can't seem to get rid of. Restore to us, Father, the hope that is ours in Christ, that we might know your calling on our lives and your purpose for our lives and for your people. Father, we come today with, as we do every week, with all kinds of burdens and struggles. There are people who are grieving. There is a need for healing. We recognize that there are relationships that are not what we wish they were. There are burdens from life and from demands and from school and all the things that our lives are a part of. And sometimes, Father, we feel overwhelmed. Give us the hope of Christ today that you are with us and that you are helping us, comforting us in our grief, healing all of our diseases. 
giving us strength to overcome the sins and the burdens that enslave us, helping us in the things that we need to accomplish, restoring all that is broken because of Christ. Father, we pray that you will bring hope to this world. We ask, Father, that where there is a culture of violence and hate and war, that the hope of Christ would bring something new. Where there is famine and drought and disease, may the hope of Christ bring the necessities of life. And for the billions of people who do not know you, may there be light and hope as your people reveal who you are and what you've done in Christ. Father, we thank you for the hope that is ours because Jesus is born. Give us grace to live in this hope today, tomorrow, this week, every day. And it is in his name that we pray. Amen. Our scripture verse this morning comes from the book of Luke, chapter 2. Please stand for the reading of the gospel. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly hosts appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven. And on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child. 
And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Do you ever wonder about the ways in which God works in the world or in your life? Do you, ever, do you ever question the, the means God uses to 
communicate what he wants to say to you or to other people? You ever sit back and say, huh, I never would have done it that way. I do. I mean, I, I do it all the time. I, I, I ask, I say, God, really? This, that was the best strategy you wanted, you could use? Wouldn't this make more sense? Wouldn't that make more sense? Wouldn't this be a better way to do it? I mean, I mean, I, yeah, I know you're God, but I think this might work better than the plan you've worked out for us here. I mean, let's be honest. You know, we, we, we wrestle with that because we have questions about the ways in which God works in our lives and in this world, the things that God lets happen and doesn't let happen, the things that God does and doesn't do. And, and we, we struggle with that question. And we're reminded as we ponder that, that God has a tendency to work in ways that are at best unexpected to us. And we see that in the middle of, of this story of the birth of Christ. We actually see it even before that. You think back to the history of the way the people in whom God works and through whom God works. And it is a, an eclectic array of people at best. Abraham. He said, God calls Abraham and says, all right, I'm going to use you to start this whole thing here. And Abraham is already 75 years old. He has no children. And God says, I'll take care of that. In 25 years. And Abraham, this great man of faith, has at least two instances scripture record where he um, doesn't treat his wife so well. And in order to save his own skin. And God says, yeah, you're the guy I want to work through. Abraham does have a son, Isaac, and when Isaac and his wife have children, they have twins. And out of the two children, God chooses the one who is named Deceiver and spends his whole life deceiving people, trying to deceive God. And God says, yeah, you're the guy I'm going to work with. And when it's time for God to to call out his people as a nation... They're slaves in Egypt. They've been slaves for 400 years. They don't know anything but being slaves. Their mindset is slavery. Every way that they think about how to understand the world is from the mindset of a slave. And God says, you're going to be my people and you're going to be this great nation. No one would have thought they would be a great nation. And God says, you're my people. And through the history of Israel, we see over and over and over again them rejecting God, turning from God, failing God. And God keeps saying, you're still my people. When God says, I'm going to choose a king who will be be the representation of what I'm looking for in people. And and will will be through his line... That the ultimate savior will come. He chooses a shepherd boy. He doesn't know anything about leading a nation. But God says, yeah, you'll do. I'll use you. And David 
in one way becomes a great man of God and another way has some of the greatest failures that anyone could ever have. And God sticks with him. And so when we come to the story of the birth of Jesus, it really shouldn't surprise us that God works in a way that we would think unexpected. I mean, it's one thing he chooses this common couple. We sort of get that and we say, okay, that's fine. But really, did she have to be pregnant without being married? I mean, that is going to bring shame not only on her, but on her fiancé and on her family and on her village. And you think about Joseph. Joseph is dealing with two demons. On the one hand, he's dealing with his reputation and all the people who are looking at him going, oh man, Joseph, I thought you were a better person than that. Really? You, You did this? And all the while, dealing with his inner demons, knowing he didn't do it. Somebody else did. What has Mary done to him? Imagine the conversation when they get together and Mary says, let me tell you what happened. (laughs) Really? That's the story you're sticking with? That's it? That's the best you can do? I mean, great, it's a wild story, but really? It takes, it takes the appearance of an angel to Joseph for him to finally say, okay, I don't understand this, but okay. Everything about Jesus' birth is, is surrounded with shame. Everything you can imagine that could go wrong sociologically happens with Jesus. Every way in which you say this couldn't be worse in terms of how people view right and wrong, moral and immoral, it's all there. And that's the way God chooses to bring his Messiah into the world. Wow. It's fascinating to me that God would also bring the Messiah into the world as a baby, and it would, spend, it would be 30 years before anything happens. Now, you know, we love babies. They're cute. There's a few pictures, you know, some babies. And we, you know, we, we love to, to snuggle them and play with them. And, and babies are awesome. And there's nothing quite like it, having a baby. And it, it, it's a, babies are phenomenal, but, but babies are not exactly... Uh, the best communication tools. I mean, babies really laugh and cry. You know, I mean, that's, they sleep a lot, but in terms of communicating, that's pretty much it. And, and when a baby wants something, or wants to communicate something, most of the time it's crying. And babies are self-absorbed. I mean, they only think about themselves, right? I mean, you think about a baby, think about a baby in the middle of the night, waking up hungry, and babies, does a baby say, you know what, it's 2.30 in the morning. I probably shouldn't wake up mom and dad. I mean, they're awfully tired anyway. I've done this a few nights in a row. Let's wait till morning. Don't we wish? No. They wake up, they're hungry, they scream. I want it now. You know, what does a baby communicate? It's, babies are awesome. They just aren't real great tools for communicating things. 
And yet God says, I'm coming as a baby. And I'm going to wait 30 years before I reveal Jesus as the Messiah to people. We think, wow, that's really, that's the way you want to do that? I'm also fascinated by the way in which God communicates the coming of Jesus, the birth of Jesus. Totally different than how we would do it. I was, I was thinking about that this week, uh, actually this summer, as I was, as when William and Catherine, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, had their little baby, Prince George. I was thinking about, reading a little bit about that and thinking about it, and you know, this royal couple has this baby, and, and they, they have to get the word out to people. The baby's been born. And they follow the practice that uh, Charles and Diana did when William was born. They, they put up a notice outside of Buckingham Palace. And this is what William and Kate did as well. And on this notice, it has the details about the child's birth, and, it has, and the, the, all the physicians who were involved in it signed it. You know, okay, that's, that's cool. But here's what interested me, is how they got this piece of paper, and of course it's all nicely framed and things, but how they got that piece of paper from the hospital to Buckingham Palace. They put it in a car, its own car, so it said, put it in its own car, and, and drove it through the streets of London by police escort until they got to Buckingham Palace. Now, I've got this image in my head. I'm thinking, so they have the thing seat buckled in the back seat? Are there pillows all around it? You know, um, are there secret service agents there in the car riding, you know, riding shotgun on the back? The car stops, you know, lights flashing. They're running red lights trying to get this thing to the palace. They get there. They, you know, they screech to a halt. The secret service guys jump out. They're all holding weapons. And somebody takes this thing out and sets it on the thing. And then they all disappear. This is ludicrous. Now, here's the thing. You want to tell people this is an important baby that's just been born? That's the way you do it. Right? There is no doubt in anybody's mind, this kid is important. Period. Now, the Messiah comes into the world, and you would think God would do something like that. Now, granted, there's an angelic choir But the choir doesn't sing to the temple, and the choir doesn't sing at the palace. The choir sings out in a field with shepherds. Now, you know, we love shepherds because they, you know, kids in the bathrobes and the Christmas pageants and all that stuff. And we have this idyllic view of shepherds, but actually shepherds are uneducated, they're uncouth. They aren't welcome in the temple because they rarely have the opportunity to go to the temple. They're outcasts. They are, they are the lowest in society. Nobody wants to be around a shepherd. And no one would, would listen to something a shepherd would tell them. I'm not even sure they are allowed to testify in court. And God says, mm, who do I want my choir to sing to? How about those shepherds? Really? God keeps doing things in ways that we wouldn't do them. Because we have a sense, we believe that, that real power 
and real success and you get things done in this world, all of that takes place in the capitals of nations and in the boardrooms of Fortune 500s and in the places of wealth, places of influence, places where you have this great majority of people who create this dynamic energy together. That's how you get things done. That's what success means. And God says, no, it's not the way I want to do things. He keeps reminding us that it's about humility, not power. It's about giving up, not grasping on. It's about losing, not winning. It's about weakness, not power. It's about surrender, by giving away. And we hear that. We hear it all the time and we shake our heads, but when it comes to real life, we wrestle to live that way. And we wrestle to see God that way. I remember years ago, I read about, a guy told a story about his being home one day, I think he was reading the paper or something, and his little three-year-old girl was playing on the floor with uh, her toys, and she was singing Christmas carols that she'd learned in church. And as she's singing through the carols, all of a sudden he thought, wait a second, that one doesn't sound right. Something doesn't sound right about that. And he listened to her a little closely, and she was singing away in a manger, in a crib for a bed, little Lord Jesus lay down his sweet head. And he realized she wasn't singing away in a manger, she was singing no way in a manger. And I read that and I thought to myself, maybe she's on to something. Because I think that's how we typically respond to a lot of the ways in which God works. It sounds great on paper, but no way when it comes to God's demands on our lives. And the ways in which God works in our lives and the calling that God places on us as people who say we follow him. God keeps working in ways that we wouldn't expect. We tend to think God does his most profound work through these experiences that grab our attention. And sometimes he does. Sometimes God works in ways that are, are so monumental that we could never forget them. But most of the time, God works in everyday life. He works in the common The mundane. He he works in, in just life. And God speaks into our hearts. God speaks into our minds. Through things that are just everyday common things. And he's asking us just to listen. To be ready, to be aware. And sometimes it's not just the circumstances. Sometimes it's the people through whom God speaks that we have a hard time thinking God could possibly say anything to us through them. Not too long ago, a friend was telling me about when he was a student in college a number of years ago. And he was an RA that year and uh, worked with an RD who he said, you know, he got along well, he liked him, nice guy. But he said, I really didn't think he was a very spiritual person. 
And he said, I felt that way. He said, maybe it was just you know, my upbringing. Maybe it was where I was in my spiritual journey. But he said, I just thought this guy watched too many movies. This guy had too much fun with, other, with people. He wasn't serious enough to be a really committed Christian. He said, my whole attitude toward him was judgmental. And we were in conversation one day, as, you know, had their weekly meetings as RA and RD. And he said, I, I said to my RD, look, you know, I, I, I'm really wrestling with where I am spiritually right now. He said, I, I feel like my life is a little bit spiritually out of kilter because I have seven classes, but I'm only doing six ministries. And I think that's probably not enough ministries. I'm not doing enough for God. I'm, I'm spending way too much time on my classwork and not enough time for God. Because I'm only doing six ministries. And the RD listened a moment and he, he said to him very gently, he said, well, why can't God be in all those things too? So why can't God be a part of your schoolwork and why can't God be a part of your relationships and your conversations and time you spend with people? And my friend said, because I really didn't respect this person, I just sort of shrugged off what he said. But God would not let me forget that. And as the years rolled along, those words just kept echoing in my mind over and over and over again. Until finally, I began to see what he was saying, that I had compartmentalized my life. I had my God life, and I had the rest of my life. And at the moments when I was doing God things, and then I had the rest of my life, and God really didn't have anything to do with much with this part of my life. They were separate. And he said, all of a sudden, I realized I had this false image of God and of life, and it needed to be shattered. It really, so I came to realize there is no such thing as, as my life having secular parts and sacred parts. I want Christ in all of it. And gradually God began to work in his heart and change his heart. And he has come to realize and to see God speaking in every moment of life. And God does speak in the moments that we are doing things we call spiritual. Worship, reading scripture, prayer. And they're very, very important things. Because those things help us prepare to hear God when we're not doing those things. But sometimes we get so enamored with those things as things to do. We compartmentalize them and think, okay, I'm done with that. I've checked that off my list. Now I go do my thing. And God says, whoa, 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 I want to be a part of that too. I've got things to say to you through that too. And he speaks into our lives in all of these ways. So we have a tendency to put God in a box. Because we want to control our lives. God, these are the ways in which God works. This is my experience. This is how I see God. This is how I've experienced God. This is how God works, period. And anything that's outside of my box that I'm uncomfortable with can't be from God. So somebody who disagrees with me theologically would have never have anything to say to me about God. I could never learn anything from them about God. 
Someone who, who sees some part of what it means to be a Christian differently than me. They could never have anything to say to me that God could use to change my heart. And experiences that I'm uncomfortable with, God could never use those to work in my life. And all the while God is saying, yes, I can. Yes, I I would love to do that. I want to do that. Let's break down the walls. Because see, our little box means that we have a small, small, tiny vision of God and of what God can do in our lives. And God wants to shatter that so that we see and experience so much more of what God wants to do in our lives. Only when we allow God to speak from the unexpected ways as well as the expected ways will we understand and experience the fullness of God, the bigness of God and all that he wants to do to to bring joy and peace and grace and all that we are yearning deep inside to know and experience. And I suspect that God comes in unexpected ways in order to remind us that we can't put him in a box. And to help us understand that we need to keep trusting him beyond what we can explain, beyond what we can know, beyond what we can wrap our hands around and our minds around and just let him be God. And let him take us on whatever journey he wants to take us. See, often our main primary goal is the end. And we have tunnel vision about the end. All we're thinking about is the end. And God, I'm convinced more and more all the time, God is less concerned about the end than he is the journey. Because if we're just focused on the end, we miss out on all these things going on in the journey. And, but if we focus on the journey, on God in every moment as we go along our way, the end takes care of itself. And instead of saying, God, you can only direct my life one way. We say, God, whatever you want to do, I might not understand it. It might not be the way I would do it or choose to do it. But... I want to trust you. St. Ignatius used to say, God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. I like that. God uses crooked sticks to draw straight lines. As I ponder all of this, it it reminded me of one of my favorite Christmas stories. It's really a poem written by Edwin Markham. Many of you may be familiar with it. It's the shoemaker's dream. It's a story of of a shoemaker in the old days who has a dream one night that Jesus is going to come to visit him the next day at his little cobbler shop. And so when he wakes up in the morning, he hurries out and gets some greenery and comes in and decorates his shop up in a way that he, see, he thinks would be fit for the, for the arrival of Jesus. 
All morning he waits for Jesus to come, but no one shows up except for an old man who comes to his door asking to come in for some warmth. And he welcomes the man in and gives him a chair and, and, and helps him to warm up and realizes, looks down and sees that his shoes are just in tatters. They're really hardly shoes at all. And the shoemaker reaches up on the shelf and pulls down a pair and makes sure that when the old man goes on his way, he's wearing a new pair of shoes. Shoemaker waits all afternoon. Nothing happens except that an old woman comes along with this heavy load of firewood and he welcomes her in and, and he, in a conversation, comes to realize that she hasn't eaten anything for two days. And so before she goes on her way, he makes sure that she gets a nourishing meal. As the afternoon begins to turn into dusk, still no one comes. Jesus doesn't arrive. And then he hears some crying outside and he goes out and there is a little child who's lost. He brings him in, warms him up, and then takes his hand and walks him home. By the time he gets back to his shop, it's now dark, end of the day, and he's very discouraged. He was sure that Jesus was coming. And he thinks about what would have happened when had Jesus been there and, and how he would have, he would have sat and, and listened to him and, and worshipped and adored his Savior. And, and in his disappointment, he said, why is it, Lord, that you delayed? Did you forget that this was the day? And out of the silence, a voice he heard, cheer your heart, for I, I came to your shop. He said, three times I came to your friendly door. Three times my shadow was on your floor. I was the man with the bruised feet. I was the woman you gave to eat. I was the child on the homeless street. God speaks into our lives when we expect it and when we don't. In what we might call the profound and the common. Is it possible that God may actually speak to you not just reading the scriptures and spending time in prayer and coming to worship, but also shoveling snow and doing dishes and making meals and studying for a test? Just life. The incarnation reminds us that God speaks to us in any way, at any time, through anyone. Are we listening? Gracious Father, thank you for speaking into our lives.
Forgive us for the times when we close our ears, our minds, our hearts. Help us to look for you, to expect you, to be ready and open to you in every way, any time, through anyone. Amen. Please stand and join us as we sing together.
because Christ is born, go this day. His peace, his love, his joy, his grace. Amen. Thank you.